Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about calling the shot. This will be an explicit language episode. A lot of times when I record an inappropriate conversation, I don't know whether it's going to carry an explicit tag or not. I try to be very sensitive to the idea of putting an explicit tag on after the fact through the editing process. If I know I've used some of the words that George Carlin was not a, not allowed to use on TV, for example, or some of the things that would get you in trouble on radio. But in this case, I know right up front, because what I want to talk about in a very explicit and direct way is the difference between orgasm and ejaculation. And there's no way for me to describe this other than saying, hey, I'm going to call my shot and it's going to be it's going to be pretty direct and forthright. Now, I'm going to hit territory where I don't have my own stories to tell. So at some point here, I will switch to someone who isn't me. But I will start just because I think it's very important. You can't call a podcast episode calling your shot and not tell your own story at least a little bit. So I will go down that path to a certain degree. First, let me do a shout out. And it feels like I've been doing shout outs every other episode here during this particular summer. And I'm not sure why that is. But if you wanted to listen to a, a different perspective on the same question, a more clinical, a more scientific and factual, more uh, formally researched perspective, I recommend the Sex Nerd Sandra podcast on the Nerdist Network and a show they put out earlier this year called Orgasms for Everyone. Now, this wasn't necessarily inspired by that. Uh, this has been one of those episodes I've been kicking the can on for the entire run of this show, saying, yeah, I'm not ready to talk about that yet. I'm not ready to talk about that yet. But for this truly to be a podcast that tries to break down barriers about discussing politics, sex, and religion, I probably need to do a little bit better job on the middle piece of that slogan. And I don't really talk about sex anywhere near as frankly as I'm going to today. So, Sex Nerd Sandra, good podcast to listen to, excellent episode, and one of the things about the episode that I personally found to be very validating was that the male uh, co-host of the show, the guest host of the show, who's on most of them, also, like probably most men, didn't really make a distinction between these two terms, almost as if the words uh, orgasm and ejaculation were synonymous or interchangeable. And the guest that they had on, the expert that day, uh, Megan, corrected the entire, you know, the entire conversation to try to find a right way to make a distinction between the two. Unfortunately, this may be an area where my lack of expertise means that I don't really know where the truth lies. They ended up with the kind of concept that orgasm and ejaculation are two separate things, but most of the time, especially for men, most of the time, they happen back to back. They could be simultaneous. One could slightly precede the other, but they didn't really have the concept of what is one without the other. And I think we have an understanding at some level that with women, of course, they're that mutually exclusive because there's probably a lot of women who have never experienced what we might call female ejaculation in the true and genuine sense of the word. But just because the distinction is clear with women and not so with men doesn't mean it's in any way invalid. 
So let me start with a straight-up internet search. And I went just online quickly to Wiki Answers or one of those websites and just typed in a question. What is the difference between an orgasm and ejaculation? I got a variety of answers, some good and some, in my opinion, not so good. If you're not familiar with this website, you type in a question and the web search comes back with you know, more than one answer to the same question, presumably in hopes that maybe if the algorithm extrapolated what you wrote into the wrong thing or not exactly what you meant, that one of these answers will be right on target. For example, on the negative side, the answers that I don't accept, um, they're basically the words given for the way a woman orgasm and a man ejaculation have a sexual climax. I disagree with that in lots of ways. There's another answer right below it that essentially says both men and women can ejaculate. When someone is sexually aroused, they get an intense feeling of pleasure called orgasm. When this happens, fluid is released from the body called ejaculation. Again, too simple. Every time a woman in a moment of sexual arousal, whether with a partner or by herself, gets wet, that's not necessarily what we would call a female ejaculation. This is, of course, a topic about which I know almost nothing. So I'll stop speaking from the female perspective from this point forward and simply speak about it from a male perspective. The answer that I like the best, at least from this website, somewhat longer, but here goes. An orgasm is a feeling of intense pleasure that accompanies sexual acts. Ejaculation is the release of fluid, usually the male expelling sperm from the penis. Some women ejaculate or squirt fluid from the glands in the vagina that secrete lubrication. Male orgasms can be non-ejaculatory, but that is less common and usually occurs as a result of stimulating the prostate directly. Ejaculation is a physical process. Orgasm is a more complex uh, process and comprises psychology, physiology, mood, and other factors. That's a definition that I think I can get behind. Now, today I don't intend to speak about stimulating the prostate directly. That's not an angle that I intend to go. So if, if someone's figuring, oh, where is he heading with this? Is this a backdoor conversation? No, it's not. I wouldn't rule out the possibility that that could be a topic I might hit in the future, but not today, because I'm going to speak strictly from a traditional penile stimulation sort of an approach. But even from the perspective of a man handling his own penis, is there a difference between orgasm and ejaculation? And I think to give the answer that makes the most sense for me personally, I'm going to go back to a point in time and I'm going to cheat a little bit and say it's a point too young for me to remember. That's actually not true. It would have been in those teenage pubescent years but I don't really feel much of a desire to parse out the timeline because it's, it's really unimportant. Somewhere between 13, 14, 15, maybe 12, certainly way before 16. But somewhere in that ballpark, it dawns on you. If it, didn't, if it didn't dawn on you before, it dawns on you that physical contact in that part of your body feels extraordinarily good. And one doesn't even have to obtain a copy of a men's magazine whether on your own steam or from your, uh, by taking something away from your father temporarily. Certainly when you're looking at that kind of female imagery, it, that sort of creates an arousal, which even intensifies the pleasure that you can feel in that particular part of your body. But at least in my experience, and this is just me speaking personally, so it's an isolated example. There is a point before which ejaculation really works. Um, I can remember, it could, it could have been just a, a matter of not understanding technique. 
But I don't think so. I think there's a point in your development, early pubescent, prepubescent, where ejaculation, as we know, it just isn't really going to happen the way that it does later in life. The, one of the definitions refer to the concept of ejaculation being the expelling of sperm from your body. But I think it's really not just sperm. I mean, anybody who's had a vasectomy will tell you that there's still a great deal of seminal fluid that happens during ejaculation. So that's, even that's an oversimplification. But even in this point in my life, I can remember just, you know, being a matter of when you were done, you simply just had to wait the swelling out. So if you were you know, messing around, making physical contact, hit a point where you were sort of tired of, you know, looking at that particular image or having that particular mental fantasy image, and you simply stopped messing around, I, at least at this point in my life, very young, did not experience the the end of a sexual practice, a masturbatory practice being ejaculation and then becoming, you know, limp again. That didn't happen. And in fact, the first time that I can trace back to, well, when was the first time that you actually experienced ejaculation, experienced what so many people confuse as being the be-all and end-all of a male, of a male orgasmic encounter, was in the shower. And this was one of those situations where it wasn't planned. It wasn't like I'd gone to the shower saying, I'm going to take this whole self-contact thing up to the next level. It wasn't that at all. It was just a matter of saying, you know, I'm in the shower. I've, I've maybe, you know, mowed the lawn or whatever. I'm particularly hot and sweaty. I'm going to wash my hair. And for whatever reason, I was also going to put conditioner in my hair. This was perhaps before the era of the shampoo and conditioner in one. Because today, I don't use those as two separate products. I try to make the shower off process go as quickly as it possibly can. But back then I did. And I was uh, using the shampoo and I had too much conditioner. Uh, I never really figured out the whole measurement of conditioner part anyway. It wasn't a product I used all the time. And I had too much. And so it was not just uh, rinsing it off my hair that was an issue. Because the other thing about conditioner, if it really is a, a softening kind of a, if it's effective at softening, it's hard sometimes to tell when it's out of your hair. You know, you don't have that sense of the hair being clean in terms of the rigidness or the, the stiffness that can come when there's, there's just soap residue there or nothing at all there. And the conditioner was running down the front of my body. And so what I did was I tried to disperse it across my body as much as humanly possible to try to water it down, so to speak. And one of the places that the conditioner ran to on its own was the pelvic area. And in the course of trying to get the conditioner off my body and off that part of my body, well, the stimulation had the you know, expected impact. What you might predict would happen, happened. But because I was in the shower at this point, for the first time in my life that I can ever remember, I was able to um, finish off. So and it wasn't just messing with the part of your body that feels particularly good. I was actually trying to scrape away or shoo away the conditioner by pulling away from my body. First, it was rubbing away from my body, but then it was pulling away from my body. And that, you know, my penis was extremely well lubricated, too well, as a matter of fact. And the result was unmistakably an ejaculation. But I didn't really realize at the time what that entailed. I mean, I already had hands full of conditioner and, and all that. So it didn't feel like it was different to me. And this distinction is pretty important because this was a, uh, an experience that I enjoyed and one that I don't mind admitting as a very young teenager, repeating. One of the lessons I learned while repeating that experience was that conditioner was a much better product for this particular endeavor. If I was going to repeat my steps exactly, conditioner was a much better product than shampoo. Now, I can't speak today about whether shampoos are milder than they used to be. 
but even just an over-the-counter shampoo that you might use as a as a teenager, whatever the standard brand would be, had enough harshness to its soap that if you had soaped up the uh, the glands and the opening of your penis had soap surrounding it because you'd lathered yourself up quite good, you could end up with a very uncomfortable feeling not long after getting out of the shower. Because one of the things that I learned the hard way, pun intended, that I've since had confirmed for me in shows like the Sex Nerd Sandra podcast, and in this case, particularly the show Do Ask, Do Tell on Simply Syndicated, uh, one of the episodes where Allison Downing, a different drummer, was on speaking with them about HIV-related issues, because certainly for speaking to the gay and lesbian community, the, the gay community in particular, HIV is an issue that has both got a great deal of history and is an ongoing concern. And in the process of talking about that, the emphasis was on saying, hey, you still need to wear a condom to protect yourself, even if you've had a vasectomy. I thought that was kind of curious. Being somebody who's in a stable marital relationship and has had one partner his entire life, with a wife who's had one partner her entire life, I don't really think too much about that. You'd think that, well, pregnancy prevention, if you'd gotten a vasectomy, was taken care of. So you wouldn't necessarily have to worry about wearing a condom. Except the difference is that I think men sometimes feel like in traditional sexual intercourse, so you know, male, female, call it the missionary position for want of a better word, you're going to be in a situation where if you had a sexually transmitted disease, you would probably be very likely to give it to her. But you might not be as worried about the bloodborne STD. And Duas Dutel did a very good job of just setting the record straight there that any man who thinks that he's culpable and at risk for getting things like herpes or genital warts because they're surface STDs and isn't as worried about bloodborne sort of seminal fluid contracting sort of uh, diseases like HIV should think twice because when an ejaculation happens, it can be a little bit like what happens when you sneeze. To make a crass example, you sort of have that moment of breathing in just before the sneeze occurs and, and, or even a hiccup where the hiccup action is a combination of breathing in and hiccuping out. And with the penis at the moment of ejaculation, especially inside a vagina, the same thing sort of happens. It's not just that you're expelling seminal fluid. You're taking in fluid right at that moment beforehand. And with the shampoo in the shower, the fluid that I was unwittingly taking in at that moment of ejaculation was fluid that had a you know, pretty high irritant factor to it because of the soap. And I can distinctly remember not being very bright about very many things and very many things sexually at this age, making a clear and unmistakable mental note that shampoo was not the way to go. Because the uh, painful irritation at the opening of the penis from having brought shampoo inside just that little bit made it extremely painful to urinate. It actually made it extremely painful to, you know, to sit in, in an uncomfortable position because it was putting a lot of pressure on a place that had a lot of irritation. And I can remember it being a matter of, of hours, not minutes, before it actually felt comfortable to urinate because it felt like you know, kind of being stuck with a needle a little bit, uh, a painful, shooting, unpleasant sensation because of the irritation of the, of the shampoo. I tell all this uh, pointlessly in some ways, both because I want to put my cards on the table a little bit, and I can't really speak about orgasm and ejaculation. Uh, with it. I don't want to do it with a 100% someone who isn't me kind of an aspect. 
But the main thing is that the funny story, I guess, behind it all is that because these first moments of ejaculation that I experienced happened in the shower and happened essentially kind of unwittingly, unintentionally, at least the first time, of course, I didn't really have any notion of what ejaculate was like. I didn't, I didn't know what semen, seminal fluid looked like or felt like because it was always uh, in a situation where there was a great deal of flowing water and usually some sort of conditioner or, of course, I didn't take that long to figure out what hand lotion could do that you're dealing in a situation where you've already got a lotion-y surface going on. And from my perspective, I really honestly believed that there wasn't that much of a viscosity difference between urine and semen. It just never occurred to me. It wasn't something that I could recall from things that I'd read. Even if I'd heard people refer to something as being creamy in a textbook or in a sex talk, I probably would have assumed that it was a reference to color and not necessarily to touch or to viscosity. And so at that point, I carried on, I want to say maybe for the better part of six months or so, with these, you know, shower time sort of explorations of human sexual response to direct genital stimulation, and most of the time with with lotion. But there was an occasion a while later, having used lotion quite a bit. And even in times maybe using lotion at night in the bedroom with the lights out, not really seeing what was coming and not really being alarmed by the fact that what had come out of my body had the same basic feel to it from a lotion-y perspective as what I'd been using on my hand, that I I still was operating under this presumption that seminal fluid was basically a liquid, a, a really, you know, loose liquid, not a thick liquid in any way. But then there did come a time. When for whatever reason, I was in a position to see what came out of my body. And again, this was months had gone by because I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily that into it. It wasn't an obsession for me, at least at that point in my life where I was making a case study out of myself with myself as the principal patient. But when I did identify what had come out of me, I was a little bit unnerved because I was expecting it to be very liquidy. In fact, I was a little bit concerned that it, maybe I'd, I'd come at a time when I wasn't expecting to. And I thought, well, it's going to be awfully hard to soak all this stuff up. And I was kind of surprised that what I was dealing with, it wasn't a liquid that could soak into a rug and make that particular kind of mess that it was, it was what we've come to know come as, to be honest with you. And at first I thought there must be something wrong with me. It wasn't what I was expecting. It was different. And I operated for probably weeks with the conclusion that all of this time using external lubricating substances like hand lotion and conditioner had somehow soaked into my body through my penis area, perhaps through my my, uh, scrotum, and had created an anomaly, created a problem, had turned me into something that was not normal because normal would have been just a liquid ejaculation as opposed to, um, you know, a seminal type of a fluid. And, you know, you talk about stopping somebody in their tracks. You can stop somebody in their tracks from at least performing certain functions in a certain way if they think that it's contributing to the problem. But that wasn't really my response. At times, I'm a little bit too cerebral for my own good. I decided that if there really was a condition that had come from the use of hand lotion in an inappropriate way, or at least what I'm certain most of my elders at the time would have described as an inappropriate way, then maybe the right thing to do would be to expel all of that as much as possible. So for, again, a two, three-week span of time, my goal 
was to not use any sort of lubricating function whatsoever, but to, over the period of that time, ejaculate all of this unwanted viscosity from my body so that I could then return to normal. It goes without saying that it didn't work. And it also probably goes without saying that for the first time I experienced what men or boys at the time would have referred to as jerking off in a very late and backward way. Instead of starting from the grab and pull technique and then later advancing into the question of lubrication, either through any sort of oral activity, which is not the direction that I took, or through literally a hand lotion approach, I actually ended up using the opposite idea. Now, I, I tell this story primarily to say that I am not a person with any sort of expertise in this issue whatsoever. Even going back to the very origin story that I might be able to tell, I'm clearly somebody who didn't have the first clue what he was doing. But to me, if you look at digital stimulation, is probably the word that probably best applies, where you're using not just hands, but digits, fingers, to stimulate a penis or penis scrotum, the entire pelvic area, you're probably going to be doing that with adequate lubrication in the form of actual lube or a lotion or some other you know, substance, not the shampoo, <laughs> but whatever it is you might be using opens up to me the window to begin to answer the question that I asked of the internet just this very day. Is there a difference between ejaculation and orgasm? And it's not just that at a prepubescent point in time, you can get an erection and feel arousal touching your penis without having an ejaculation. It's also that the use of digital external stimulation, of course, in the penis case, it should be external, gives you the opportunity to stimulate certain parts of the body in a way that are analogous to the female experience. And the best way to go into this is to deal with the testimony of others and to talk from the perspective of the point of view, not that it's a point of view I necessarily disagree with, but it's a point of view that I haven't as, perhaps explored as thoroughly as, well, I, I could have. The point of view of someone who isn't me. So after a quick break, let's talk about the story from Swim's perspective. Hello, you wonderful lot. I'm Elton McManus, and I'm here to promote an apotheosis of a bombast. But instead of me waffling on about it, I decided to put a couple of clips together just to show you what it's all about. Enjoy! All I remember is uh, Penelope Pitstop did my brain in. It was like a dart, little dart kind of rocket car, it looked yeah. like. We actually had Stephen Hawking on the show. Tato Chip looks like Jesus, or... Were you a BBC One or an ITV man? Got no shirt on. Me and a friend got uh, drunk one night and we started writing down inappropriate Mr. Men names. <laughs> it's Mr. Man and Little Miss, those ones you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. Little Miss Whore. Bring me Penelope Pitstop. So there you have it, guys. If you do like it, join myself and Scott Copperman at bombastpodcast.podbean.com or find us somewhere in iTunes. Thanks. It's potentially alarming. Well, first, it's alarming that I'm having this conversation. <laughs> I finally got there. It's potentially alarming that I'm speaking in a way that I think I can almost take for granted that there's going to be some people who are like, yeah, 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 this is pretty obvious. This is not anything new. And there are other people who will get to the end of this conversation and say, that's full of crap. I don't know what he's talking about. His own experience, maybe I buy that, but the rest of it doesn't make sense. Well, let me go to a couple of concepts again that I introduced earlier and just kind of restate the case. One is analogous sexual body parts, and the other is digital stimulation. So when you think about a woman, 
masturbating, which to be honest, you know, even at certainly at this stage when I was growing up and all the way through college, something of a mystery to me. And I think if I were to be honest, probably still something of a mystery to me. But female masturbation is definitely you know, often conceived of as if you leave out any sort of objects, if you leave out any sort of vibrator or any other kind of quote unquote sex toy, you're most likely dealing with hands and fingers. And the fingers part gets you into this concept of digital stimulation. So touch and feel. But when we're talking about analogous body parts, what do I mean? And what I mean is that we're all male and female human. And the nerve endings may be different somewhat from gender to gender. It's not a species distinction. They're not that different, right? So when we're talking about outer labia, outer labia can be roughly analogous to the scrotum. In fact, I've heard someone say, it could have been sex nerd Sandra, but someone say that that sort of dividing line down the middle of the scrotum is essentially uh, the point where you might say, well, there would have been a separation there because it would have been two separate outer labia. But in the male, they're fused together and holding the testes because that particular part of the male reproductive system is largely, although not always, external to the body as opposed to internal to the body like the woman's ovaries are. So then you have the shaft, which if you think about the shaft of the penis is very analogous. This is the easiest thing I'm going to say all day, that the shaft of the penis fits into the vaginal opening of the woman so clearly and obviously and well, neatly and well, because they're analogous body parts, one being an external tube filler and the other being a, a tube itself. So that makes sense. Well, it didn't really take me much of a jump to figure out, even as a kid having only a narrow set of experiences with myself in the shower, that the end of the penis, the penis head, is analogous to the clitoris, which raises the question of what would happen if a male were to be self-stimulated, start with the self, in the same manner that a woman was stimulated. In other words, by in a particular way, rhythmically, digitally, stimulating the end of the penis, which is analogous to the clitoris. Would it be comparable to a clitoral orgasm? I don't think that's a fair question to ask. I don't know that there's an answer. And if there is an answer, I'm guessing that the answer is probably very speculative. For one thing, you've got a different size involved. So you have nerve endings that are cast over a different area. Uh, so I think that there's a certain amount of intensity to the female experience because of just how much is packed in to a comparatively smaller place uh, in the clitoris than the head of a penis. But if a male were able to stimulate the end of his penis in a particular way, it would probably be close enough to analogous to make a call that you're getting as close as you can get. Now, most men don't realize this. They don't realize this. And I put myself in that camp. They don't realize this because for a man on his own to attempt to address his body in that particular way is only going to be a prelude to good old fashioned jerking off, which is why most men do not associate touching themselves in that part of their body as being potentially orgasmic without an ejaculation because the connection between orgasm and ejaculation is direct. For a lot of guys, I'm sure the moment that they feel that particular kind of stimulation, they just finish the deed. So how can this be achieved? How can this comparison be made if the comparison has validity, which I believe it does, particularly based on what I've read and from the limited amount of my personal experience, I haven't seen anything that would necessarily discredit this concept. But I think what you really need is you need a partner. You need somebody who would know when to stop. Somebody who doesn't necessarily 
turn that sort of focused approach into nothing more than a traditional ejaculation. So can you have an orgasm without ejaculating? Well, I believe that you can. The more difficult question is, that can you ejaculate without having an orgasm? And believe it or not, my understanding is that that's true too. You would think that that would be a much more rare occurrence because more often than not, that's not going to be a goal for anyone. And I don't think most men would go into any sort of sexual encounter. Even an intentional sort of let's explore hand jobs sort of encounter without the intent of finishing that off with an ejaculation. But what if that hand job sort of encounter, what if that exploration of what a person who's got a great deal of skill and talent manipulating a penis with a great deal of lubrication, what if that individual committed 30, 45 minutes to that sort of exploration? And I bet you there's a lot of guys out there who'd be quick to say, well, you know, I'm in for five or 10 minutes, but then it would get boring. Well, maybe. But remember, I'm assuming that you're dealing with somebody who's skilled in this area, somebody who has a mission to delay ejaculation as long as possible and to prolong the stimulation of parts of the body in a way that's analogous to female masturbation, such that it can generate what is, well, I, I'm going to maintain that these feelings can't be described in any other way than orgasm. Dr. Alex Comfort, also a different drummer, in the Joy of Sex books, has mentioned at in one or two of the sections, speaking of this sort of slow masturbation, as being something that perhaps your average man couldn't possibly endure unless tied down, and that he was choosing to address the issue in his books, not necessarily in a segment on digital stimulation, and certainly not in a, seg a section on autoeroticism, but instead, you know, when he was about ready to deal with the question of bondage, because the two almost had to go hand in hand. Because unless a woman was very powerful or very, very persuasive, eventually the man's going to stop her from what she's doing. Now, not stop her from what she's doing because it feels bad, although there may be claims that it's too much or that it doesn't feel good or that it's, you know, it's over the top. But that's just how rare it is for your average man being stimulated by hand to experience orgasm. The male mind doesn't know what to do with that particular set of reactions because it's too much. It's overwhelming. And they, the man knows that this can end with ejaculation. Or can it? I personally have experienced the situation where at, at a moment of ejaculation, too much prolonged stimulation, a little bit too much carrying forth with whatever the activity may be, whether it be a traditional intercourse or whether it be something else, can actually lead to a post-ejaculation orgasm. In some ways, it makes sense. If you really are a, a believer that ejaculation is the be-all and end-all, that moment for the penis is the absolute zenith of the expansion of all sort of skin to receptiveness, uh, nerve openings. You hit the jackpot, so to speak. And anything that happens that stimulates that part of your body immediately after that point in time, if the man's still maintaining erection, which tends to happen, it's not like the gun's fired and then you're immediately limp, can be an overwhelming experience because you've actually tapped into all of those nerve endings and you can still address them in a way that is, you know, and I think probably your average man has experienced this, uh, either with himself or he decided, oh, I'm going to stop doing this now that that's just a little bit too much, maybe a little bit too weird, or with a woman where it can be very hard when intentionally practicing the withdrawal method. Sometimes it can be very hard to withdraw beforehand, of course. And of course, afterward, if you're um, wearing a condom, which you should, 
and you're having intercourse and you've, you've decided that, well, because I'm wearing a condom, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to see it through. It can be very hard to stop that process. And most men will either thrust deeply and hang there because stimulation is just too much to pull out or will pull out because continuing to thrust after that moment of ejaculation. And I'm not talking about the split second after. I'm talking about enough after that you know that it's after. Well, again, you're firing off all those nerve endings. So if this definition of this sense of this being a physiological and a psychological and a, an emotional and a nerve ending sort of an approach to make the distinction between orgasm and ejaculation, well, we're def- that's, that's the definition of it. For someone to be able to touch you in such a way that you're not being led to ejaculation from this, it's not a pure on stroke. It's not a jerk off. It's actually just stimulation of a particular part of the body in a way that is intended to fire up those nerve endings and not necessarily intended on its own to draw seminal fluid out of the testicles. What do you call that? If somebody is, you know, on the verge of screaming, you know, please stop, please stop, please stop. What's, what's causing that reaction, especially if everyone would acknowledge in that sexual encounter that nothing being experienced there was pain. This is the testimony of the, you know, someone who isn't me part of the program. And I'm not, you know, doing this inappropriate conversation to say, hey, go out and get yourself one of these kind of hand jobs that'll blow your mind. I'm not taking an advocacy position here. I'm simply raising an intellectual point on a sexual matter to say, hey, orgasm and ejaculation are not the same thing. What are the consequences to this idea? Why does this matter at all? Because I'm going to make an argument only very briefly that it's actually a pretty crucial indicator of some of the things which might be wrong with the way immature male sexuality is expressed inside relationships. And the wall up is on the ground. This is where we're going to have the music. The music, which hopefully we will either find or Jim will provide for us. Can you type porn music into iTunes and see what I'm not typing porn into anything. I'll I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And we're the socially functional co-hosts of Anomaly. The podcast with a unique perspective, a female perspective on all things geek. Star Trek. Star Wars. Lord of the Rings. Buffy. Firefly. Gaming. Books. Costuming. And general geek topics. The sometimes monthly, but always entertaining Anomaly Podcast. Anomalypodcast.com. It would be a little bit odd if you were in a relationship with a woman who was an active, routinely practicing female ejaculator. I say this is so far beyond my realm of experience that I haven't even found someone who isn't me that I could use as a basis to speak to it. I I don't have anyone else's story to share with or without attribution, but it would be a little bit odd. I think we'd, we'd think there was something strange about her if she was not necessarily interested in what we traditionally think of as a female orgasm. And was more interested only in getting some squirting done. And yet when you think about the male mentality, I just described the male mentality pretty well. There are men who I believe have engaged in acts of masturbation for no other purpose than doing what the British call tossing one off. You know, essentially, you know, being the kind of wanker 
that isn't necessarily even interested in the pleasure from the experience, just looking to get her done, right? Well, I jumped into the American South there. Sorry. But this notion that the be-all and end-all, that the, the game is played because you know you win by ejaculating, strikes me as a little bit unusual. Because I think both men and women probably should be shooting for the orgasm, pun intended. And for men, a lot of them probably don't never get anywhere near what we would genuinely call this particular kind of orgasm. They never experience what I would call the analogy of the clitoral orgasm, only experiencing perhaps the analogy of what you might call the vaginal orgasm. And I'm not going to say one's better than the other. I'm certainly not, you know, going down the direction of this topic to say that anybody who hasn't experienced this has something wrong with them. I probably should even apologize to myself for insinuating that there was something necessarily wrong with me from my own adolescent experience. Kids will be kids. And, you know, to the degree that kids are inherently dumb, I think kids will be kids. But when men go into relationships with squirting as the goal, well, that can have an impact on concepts like foreplay. It can certainly explain um, how the misuse of prophylactics or the unwillingness to use contraception can lead to so much teen pregnancy. The, the bottom line is men should be asking more for themselves and from themselves because it's not that I'm saying that a, a, a good sexual experience doesn't include ejaculation. It's probably true if you thought it through that perhaps for a man to feel like he had a fulfilling sexual experience, ejaculation will be involved. But how many orgasms can a man have on the way to that ejaculation? And would a man who had three, four, five orgasms during the course of either an oral experience or a digital experience consider all that time to be wasted? And I'm going to suggest to you that any man who truly feels that way probably hasn't experienced his orgasm as fully as he should. I'm almost a little bit embarrassed about the different drummer today, and I am for a couple of different reasons. First, I'm going to keep it short, which means that once again, hitting one of my you know, favorite different drummers of all time, I'm seeming to give them less time. I mean, Thomas Jefferson barely had three quotations and a thank you very much before I was done with him. Aristotle also used primarily to provide a footnote to the topic that was being discussed <laughs> that that show. So I feel a little bit bad that I'm bringing John Coltrane on and I'm not going to spend anywhere near the time he deserves. But let's be honest, uh, if you're a fan of John Coltrane's music, the time he deserves is more than just a different drummer segment to begin with. The other reason I'm a little bit embarrassed is that I'm talking about John Coltrane in this particular episode, and I'm releasing this episode on or around July the 17th, because July the 17th is the anniversary of John Coltrane's death. John Coltrane died 1967 at the age of 40 in New York City. It means we're talking right now about the 45th anniversary of John Coltrane's death, meaning that he's been dead longer than he was alive. But what am I doing? Intentionally attaching a different drummer, like, you know, in this case, John Coltrane, to an episode about orgasm and ejaculation. On some level, I, I'd be honest, it feels a little bit disrespectful. But I'm also going to be honest to say, hey, more often than not, I try to connect the different drummer to the topic as best I can. And there is something about John Coltrane's music that reminds me of, well, of this particular topic. If you're not a fan, um, there's good entry points for you. And I'm going to I'm drop a few names of CDs, at least, you know, in this particular conversation. 
But the music of John Coltrane, I think, could be accurately described both as an almost ejaculation of solo, which is in and of itself a pun, right? He you know, is able to put a great deal of notes and a great fluid delivery out there in a way that probably most people these days, certainly at the time, had a hard time even comprehending what it was he was doing. When I think of John Coltrane, I think of those freeform jazz improvisations where maybe he starts with a song you've heard before, like My Favorite Things or Autumn Leaves or Nancy with the Smiling Face. And when he's done with it, you're not sure where the song started because you can't imagine how it's going to end. And somebody brings it all back home. But I'm going to lean less away from the ejaculation comparison and more toward the orgasm comparison, because truth be known, his music hits some heights even when he's dealing with the slow ballad type approach that certainly make me think that this is a guy who is at one with his instrument in every sense of the word. The first time I bought a song by John Coltrane was at a music convention. And this is so long ago that we're talking about products being marketed still primarily in cassette tape. Compact disc was out there and compact disc was the growing entity in the music business. But the company that I had encountered was called Personics. And what Personics did was they had a music library, and this is you know way pre-iTunes. We're talking about 1989 here, give or take. They had a music library that was you know, by no means comprehensive by today's standards, but you could pick particular songs. You could handpick from albums, and they would uh, sell you a rate per track. It might differ per track depending on how long the song was. A Yes song is going to cost a lot more than a Dead Kennedy song, for example. But once you, you know, picked out the songs you wanted and paid the price, they would then drop them into a cassette tape and give you a cassette tape of your music. You could pick the sequence that the songs were in. You could kind of on your own try to do your best to balance the tape length so you wouldn't have too much blank time at the end of any, either side of your tape. And among the songs that I bought that day uh, was John Coltrane. Now, this Personic tape's still in my library somewhere. It's the kind of thing that I probably wouldn't get rid of even if I was trying to you know, ditch all of my cassettes just for the sentimental value of knowing that you were in a place in time. Because today, it's hard to imagine the record labels permitting this at all with their current attitude. And to spin them to CD would have been even more unacceptable. But I'm still somewhat alarmed at why this program was so successful to begin with, why it got the green light to begin with. So without looking at the tape and just going off memory, I seem to recall that my particular Personics cassette had on it The Cure, How Beautiful You Are, The Call, The Walls Came Down, Tom Waits, uh, Christmas Card from a Hooker in Minneapolis, Clarence Frogman Henry, and his classic, I Don't Know Why I Love You But I Do, and perhaps a couple of other tracks, but the key one for me was Blue Train, the title track to the John Coltrane CD called Blue Train. So I've got my own Personics tape. The people that I was hanging out with had theirs. This was a convention where store managers from all over the country were together, so you were rooming with somebody, and rooming with somebody you didn't know. So there were two beds to a room, two people to a room. So it wasn't quite that kind of a cozy roommate situation, but still close quarters for complete strangers. And so we got back that night from you know the uh, dinner and the events after, and we're playing the Personics tapes that we'd made. And this guy, store manager, a little bit more veteran than me, threw an absolute tantrum that I was asking him to listen to the music of John Coltrane. To him, it's just a bunch of noise, a bunch of notes strung together. They don't make any sense. There's no melody. It, you know, he didn't understand what was going on in the music, so he rejected it. 
it reminded me of Pauline Kael's seminal essay on film called Zeitgeist and Poltergeist. We're near the end. She's talking about being at a screening of the 1965 film The Haunting by Robert Wise, based on the Shirley Jackson book, where Pauline Kael was sitting behind a bickering couple, not a young couple. This is a middle-aged, older couple, because the man thought they were going to see a scary movie, and he was mad because nothing was happening. And the woman kept assuring them that eventually something will happen. Let's stay. Eventually something will happen. And Polly and Kale's observation was, of course, that they missed what was happening all along because they were expecting somebody to play in a convention that they were familiar with. They were expecting Godzilla. They were expecting Dracula. And when they weren't getting the kind of you know, cheap thrills they were expecting, they couldn't process it at all. This was how my roommate was responding to John Coltrane. It wasn't what he was expecting. It wasn't boys to men. So he didn't know what to do with it. It didn't have a preset melody. It didn't have a drum machine beat. It didn't have the conventions he was used to. And to be fair to him, even from the conventions of jazz, you know, John Coltrane didn't often play in the same sandbox as everybody else. He was fairly far away from you know, other people who might play the same musical instruments as he. Yeah, he wasn't you know, playing the same style as a Stan Getz. If I were to recommend John Coltrane, obviously I'm going to recommend Blue Train. Why not? It was one of the first Coltrane albums that I bought. I also, from a, in a similar way, have a great deal of esteem for Giant Steps. But I'm avoiding the obvious here, because the John Coltrane CD that you probably most often hear people refer to is A Love Supreme. And I like A Love Supreme because it brings in all of these elements, perhaps a little bit more melody in some places uh, to you know, assuage that particular part of his audience, but also improvisational. In fact, my absolute favorite is on the second disc of the 2002 Deluxe Edition of A Love Supreme. And part three, Pursuance. That particular live performance, they really does a good job, both obviously with Coltrane as a soloist, but also with the percussion. Really a nice drum interplay on part three, the Deluxe Edition. A Love Supreme, as you might imagine, is regarded highly as being a spiritual work. You're talking about, uh, well, the final track is actually called Psalm. So when you deal with John Coltrane as an artist, and you begin talking about him in, from an inappropriate conversation's perspective, is there a spirituality here? Well, I'm not going to point any fingers at Mr. Coltrane and make any presumptions about what his quote-unquote religious beliefs are. But I will share a quote from the johncoltrane.com website that I think expresses the spirituality pretty well. Here's Coltrane. My goal is to live the truly religious life and express it in my music. If you live it, when you play, there's no problem because the music is part of the whole thing. To be a musician is really something. It goes very, very deep. My music is the spiritual expression of what I am, my faith, my knowledge, my being. John Coltrane. I think I'm right, or at least accurate, in saying this is the most sexually explicit episode of Inappropriate Conversations that I've done. But I can't really be honest and true to the theme of the show about dealing with politics, sex, and religion, if at least from time to time, I'm not talking about sexuality. And in this case, I'm probably talking about sexuality in a way that makes people uncomfortable. You know what? If we can't be uh, comfortable in our own skin, if we can't be comfortable with ourselves 
that's ultimately going to compromise what we're able to offer someone else sexually. If you've got a different opinion or you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. And the website has show notes enabled at www.inappropriateconversations.org. While I'm at it, have you got Stitcher yet? Inappropriate Conversations is on Stitcher, so you should get it. It's an award-winning provider of news and talk radio for your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. Thanks for listening.